Well, welcome back to the uh, Sunday Sermon Podcast from Palview Christian Church. My name is Pastor Trey. I'm the uh, pastor here, the lead pastor here at uh, Palview Christian Church in beautiful central Oregon. This morning we're starting a new series through the Bible, a book in the Bible. This time it's the book of Hebrews. Now, to be honest, um, Hebrews was a book that for a long time I was actually afraid of. Anytime our Bible study group ended a study, I would always ask, so what do you want to go through next? And I was always silently but fervently praying that they would not say Hebrews. Why? Well, I never took Hebrews as a Bible college student. Anytime I tried to read through it, it seemed a very daunting read. Uh, it, it was totally different from the other books of the New Testament, whereas you know Paul's letters to the Corinthians or the Thessalonians or the Colossians or the Philippians, all of those, th- those were Greek uh, towns. Those were uh, Greek uh, people mostly, at least in the Greek culture. And Paul's got this definite style and theology that appeals to the Greeks. Um, but Hebrews is different. It, it's, as one commentator has put it, much more rabbinical. In nature, that, that that means it's not so straightforward and and uh, logically set out like Paul's letters would be. Um, there's definitely strong Hebraic overtones. That's to be expected of who it's written to. By the way, <clears throat> uh, the uh, the title to the Hebrews is probably a later addition, but it was made. Uh, it was put in there for a very specific reason, because of the Hebraic overtones. You you could just tell that whoever wrote this, they were writing it to Hebrews um, that uh, had converted to Christianity. Now, again, this is not one of Paul's letters, in my opinion. There there are some people out there who think that Paul did write this, or that Paul wrote it and then somebody translated it into Greek. But it's different from the Pauline letters. For, For example, just one thing. Paul begins his letters by identifying himself. That's how he writes. Paul, an apostle called by God or, or whatnot. He always says Paul, uh, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, whatever it is. Um, the book of Hebrews, again, does not begin that way at all. In fact, it's clear that it's not addressed to any one particular church loaded, located in a particular city. Also, <clears throat> this is the one book in the New Testament that quotes from the Old Testament more than any other So you got to know that it's written to people who were familiar with the Old Testament. And knowing that the early church began as Judaism 2.0, essentially, because the early church was just comprised mainly of Jews, um, it makes sense to use the title to the Hebrews. See, from very early on, this letter had been recognized by the church fathers as being written to Jews who had come to faith. Now, why? Why was it written? Well, If you look at the themes throughout the letter, you're going to get the sense that the author, whoever it was, was very concerned about these Jewish converts to Christianity growing uh, anxious, if you will, about their newfound faith in Jesus because they were being tempted, apparently, to turn back to Judaism 1.0, back to the law as the means of their salvation. Now, certainly knowing the history of the beginnings of Christianity, scholars do theorize that the persecution of the uh, the the new sect of Jews, which was the Christians, that they were called people of the way. Uh, and in Antioch, up in Syria, they or Turkey area, they were known as Christians for the first time. Knowing that there's the persecution 
back in the first century of the Christians, that might have added to the pressure for these Jewish converts to rethink. <laughs> do, they, do they really want to stay with this sect of Jewish uh, people that um, is now attracting a lot of attention from the Roman Empire, or do they want to go back to their old ways? Up until the latter part of the uh, first century, Judaism had been permitted in the Roman Empire. You know, Rome didn't care what you, you believed in, just as long as you paid your taxes and kept the peace. But somehow, <clears throat> this sect of Judaism, Christianity, well, that became uh, uh, that became illegal, and so there was a lot of persecution for those who were in the early church. And so maybe these Jewish converts were tempted to go back to their old, old ways because of the persecution. Um. So, yeah, so uh, for some evidence of this, by the way, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 says, recall the former days, the former days when after you were enlightened, after you came to know Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. See, apparently it had been a hard struggle with sufferings once they became Christians, including even the confiscation of their property. It seems in the conclusion of the letter to the Hebrews that it was very possible that the author of Hebrews was writing from prison even, maybe, arrested for being a part of Christianity. Now, <clears throat> if there was this persecution that the recipients of the letter were undergoing, well, then we come to the question of when was the letter written? Well, first off, we know that in A.D. 95, in the year of our Lord 95, the church father Clement of Rome actually alluded to the letter to the Hebrews. So in the early 90s, uh, that would have been the very latest that it could have been written if Clement of Rome, Rome already knew about it in 95. But also, to, to kind of pinpoint the timing, there's the mention of sacrifices by the priests, which is interesting because uh, now, Again, that may be just an allusion to what used to happen because the author of Hebrews actually talks about the tabernacle, which predates the temple, predates uh, King David even. So they might be going way, way back to talk about the sacrifices that used to happen at the tabernacle. Or we could understand that when they talk about the sacrifices there in the book of Hebrews, that that actually indicates that sacrifices were still taking place which means that this needed to be written before AD 70 because that's when Rome came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And once that temple was destroyed, it eliminated the ministry of the priests to make sacrifices for the people from that point on. So it could be that Hebrews was written even before AD 70. So now we get to who wrote it. Well, short answer, I don't know. We don't know. A lot of traditions in the West include it with Paul's writings. But it's so different, like I said, from Paul's style that it's hard to take that as fact. Furthermore, <clears throat> internally, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, uh, in the last part of that verse, it says that the gospel message was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us, whoever the writer is, it was attested to us by those who heard. It was attested to us by those who heard. Well, Paul, according to Galatians 1.12, was one of those people who had heard directly from the Lord. In Galatians 1.12, he says, we didn't get this from any man. Well, it's obviously from Hebrews 2.3 that whoever's writing this down got it from a man who had heard it from the Lord. So this is secondhand information 
And so those, again, that's evidence, in my mind at least, uh, takes Paul out of the running to be the author of Hebrews. Um, others disagree. I get it. But if the author isn't Paul, then who, who wrote it? Well, again, I don't think we know. Whoever it was, they knew Timothy because Timothy is brought up at the very last chapter of, of the book. Whoever it was used some pretty polished Greek. Some people theorize that maybe Paul did write it in Hebrew. And then later on, Luke, the doctor, the traveling companion with, uh, with Paul, who wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, maybe he um, translated it into this kind of polished Greek. Okay, um, Whoever it was understood incredibly well the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Now, the Septuagint is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures because that's the, the version of the Old Testament that is quoted in, in Hebrews. And again, there are more Old Testament quotes in Hebrews than any other letter that we get in the New Testament. So whoever it was knew the Scriptures. So it could be Apollos or Barnabas or Aquila or Priscilla. Yes, maybe it was written by a woman. <gasps> Gasp. Uh, maybe that's why it's anonymous, because they didn't want the fact that a woman had written this to kind of upset the apple cart, if you will. Or again, it could, be, could have been Luke, the physician, whoever it was. <laughs> it was the Holy Spirit that was inspiring them to bring a clear message to these Hebraic Christians who were tempted to go back to the old way. There's this incredibly clear case being made for something new and improved. It's new and improved. This new covenant, this gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. And these believers must continue to cling to that for their salvation. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Or Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. The, those are just a few examples of this encouragement that the author gives to the people. If we were to come up with an overarching theme for Hebrews, it, it could be, don't give up. You've found the truth. You know, in our culture, there are taglines and jingles in commercials to get your attention, to, to get you to buy something because it's better than what it was before, like new and improved, right? So, I mean, you could say, Jesus, he's the real thing, like Coca-Cola or um God's son, the best a man can get, like Gillette, or you're in good hands with Jesus instead of with Allstate, or go gospel and leave the driving to him, right? Because it's the best. It is better. It is new and improved. In other words, you thought angels were great? Well, Jesus is greater. You thought the prophets were great? Jesus is greater. If you thought Moses and the law were great, well, Jesus is greater. The high priest in the temple? Jesus is greater. In other words, the author is saying, why would you go back to old and mediocre when you've experienced new and improved? Now, that's going to be the essence of our study through this book. And we will begin with one of the deepest theological treasures that one can ever discover, that we have a God who is the God who speaks. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 and look just at the first three verses today. I'll, I'll be reading today. Uh, from the NIV, although I think on Sunday I'll be uh, reading from the ESV. But it says, in the last 
In, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, um, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All right. So I actually, I read four verses there, but oh well. What do we learn about God, the God who speaks in this passage? Well, we have a God who reveals himself. He revealed himself in the past to several degrees in several ways through uh, the prophets. And, and that's not just the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the ones that are considered prophets, but even the patriarchs spoke for God to the people. Moses spoke to God. I mean, spoke to the people through God, right? And, and God seems to pride himself to be the God who speaks. And, and, and he compares himself to idols in in a way that he calls them mute and they can't talk. I can. I reveal myself. These idols cannot. Uh, for example, Exodus 20, 22, uh, the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Or Ezekiel twelve twenty five, for I, the Lord, will speak and whatever word I speak will be performed. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Isaiah 46, 7. Their God, talking about the false gods, the idols, their God is a mere object never speaks, never answers. It can't help them no matter how desperate they are. And Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They do not make a sound in their throat. You see that God is calling himself the God who speaks, and that's what differentiates himself from any other false gods. And it's important that he's a God who speaks, who reveals, because that's how we know him. You, you understand this. You can know something about a person. You, you can know all about a person. You can read a biography about, oh, I don't know, a, a superstar today. You can look at their Wikipedia page. You can watch their Instagrams or, 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 or Facebook stalk them, whatever. But you know that that's not the same as knowing them. The only way to know somebody is for that person to actually reveal themselves in a very personal way to you. So in this passage, the author of Hebrews... <laughs> By the way, heretofore to be referred to by me as the author, just so it, it's a, a lot quicker. The author acknowledges that in the past, to various degrees, in various ways, God spoke through men and women. God spoke through the prophets. By, by the way, a prophet doesn't just have to foretell the future, just so you understand that. A, a prophet was just somebody who would speak for God. And, and sometimes it was about the future, but most of the time in the Old Testament, it was somebody with a message for the people right then and there, where they were living, when they were living. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God sending messages through people. But as the author shows in this passage, God has now chosen to speak to us directly through the Son, who can be entrusted with a message because 
he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, there are two words in classical Greek that can mean image. One is icon. And that's a representation of something. For example, when I put on my graphic artist hat, I love graphic art. When I am creating something, sometimes I go online to Google and I seek an image that is an icon, an icon of a ram, for example. Something that uh, resembles a ram and is supposed to represent a ram, but it's definitely not a ram. I mean, not, not, not identical to a ram. It's an icon. Now, that is a word that is used in the New Testament, but not here. Not in this passage. See, the, the, the word that we get for image here in Hebrews chapter 1 is character, which obviously is translated from Greek to English to our word character. It's also an image, but it's a term that, des- that would have described when you would take an image and you would stamp that image into metal like you're minting a coin or something like that. You, you, you would place it on the metal and you would start to hammer it into the metal. And so when you take it off the metal, what comes out on the metal is an exact imprint. It's, it's not a mere representation. It's not an icon. It is the exact imprint of whatever you were stamping into the metal. That's what the author is saying about Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. It's like if you took God and you stamped him into metal, that it would that's what Jesus is. It's like what Jesus told his disciples when they asked him to reveal the Father. He says in John 14, well, if you've seen me, <laughs> you've seen the Father. <clears throat> in other words, he's saying, listen, I, I'm not just an icon. I am the exact stamped image of God, the character. Now, for an even deeper concept, it's like when in the beginning the Word was and it was with God and it was God, which is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, this eternal Son was everything that God is in his deity. But as the incarnate God, the, the, the God who puts on flesh and dwells among his people, the invisible God is made visible and displayed for us as the very image of God himself. Now, this fact gives the author the foundation on which he's going to build his declaration of the superiority, the greatness of Jesus to anything and everything that came before or that will come since. It's as if God was building towards this summit of connection with his people, everything pointing now to the physical representation of God in the person and in the character of Jesus, the Messiah. This, by the way, is why the author uses the phrase in these last days. You know, in, in our culture, obvious, uh, oftentimes when that phrase is used, people, uh, they, they jump to uh, an understanding of, well, oh, they're talking about the very last days, like the end of the world when, when, when Jesus comes back. But in reality, <clears throat> in the New Testament especially, the last days are mentioned often. And, and, and most of those passages refer to the last way that God is choosing to relate to us. It's based on grace and forgiveness rather than the law. The, the, the forgiveness of sins made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was the climax, the ultimate part of history. Because now that he has come and died and was resurrected, we are now living in the last days. Not, not just because we might see things in our world today that seem like prophecy is being fulfilled, but we are living in the last days because... As the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers on the day of Pentecost, 
that day that the church began. This was the culmination of everything that the Old Testament was revealing. Talking about the consequence of our sin now being paid for by by Jesus through his sacrifice, the sacrifice that takes away our sin. And then a a reconnection between God and man made possible. And and, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit writing the, the law, not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. And so in a very real sense, because Jesus came, we don't need anything else. Because Jesus' ministry, both here on earth as he would live a sinless life and then go to the cross and, and pay the penalty for our sins, and his heavenly ministry as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us, serving as our go-between, his ministry is sufficient. We don't need anything else. His ministry is sufficient because it is the perfect imprint of who God is. And so God no longer speaks through the prophets. He speaks through his son. Now, a question that my dad would always ask after uh, hitting a concept like this, he would say, so what? <coughs> Which means, I mean, that, that could sound very flippant and, and uh, disrespectful, but no, it's like, okay, so if that is truth, well, then so what? Can you recall the times of the gospel accounts when Jesus would use the phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear? It's even in the Revelation of John. Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, and he would say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. In other words, if God is the God who speaks, so what? Well, the so what is that we who believe need to be the people who listen, who have our ears open that are, we are willing to hear, we're ready to hear, and we're ready to respond. I love the story of the, uh, the boy, Samuel, in the Old Testament. Samuel's mama had uh, been barren. She'd prayed for a son. She said to God that she would give her son uh, to the service of the Lord if he would give her a son. And so God gave her a son, Samuel. And Hannah, his mom, dedicated him to service to the Lord, just like she had promised, uh, there in the tabernacle. Uh, Eli was the high priest at that time, and Samuel then was being raised by Eli, the priest. And one night, God spoke to Samuel audibly. He said, Samuel. And, and in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel said, here I am. He didn't know it was God talking, by the way. He had run to Eli and said, well, here I am. You called me. Eli said, I didn't call. Go lie down again. So Samuel went, laid down again, and the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call my son, go lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, we are told there in 1 Samuel chapter 3. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But the Lord called to Samuel again the third time. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was probably calling the boy. It was the Lord, not him. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go back and lie down. If he calls you again, say this, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down back in his bed, and the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And the Lord began a relationship with Samuel from that day forward. He began to reveal his plans and his messages to Samuel. 
Can you see the power of that response? Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Because that's what having a relationship with God, your creator, is all about. God is the God who speaks, and as he speaks, as you listen, this is how you will come to know him. Not just know about him, but to know him. To know his voice. Now, the author is encouraging these first Christian, sorry, these first century Jewish Christians to stay the course, to stand firm in their faith, because God is revealing himself through Jesus. So to walk away from Jesus would be the worst choice that they could ever make. There are seven profound phrases just in this this first passage, this thesis statement, if you will, that we will study more in depth next week. And each one of these seven phrases speak to the critical role of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus as the head of all things, as the one through whom God made the universe, as the radiance of his glory, as, again, the exact representation of his being. We're going to see Jesus as the one who sustains all things through his powerful word, as the one who provides purification for our sins, and as the one who's been seated at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. By the way, that final one, the one that he has been seated at the right hand, well, that that communicates the sense of completion. Like these are the last days. God doesn't need to do anything else. This is the fulfillment of everything that God had spoken in the past. But if, in fact, Jesus is all of these things, then the case is absolutely watertight. There is no better way for God to speak to us than through his son, Jesus. And if you, like the Jewish Christians in the first century, ever think that there's a better way through Muhammad or through Joseph Smith or even through the modern-day preachers, then you're going to be eternally regretful for that decision. If you think that you're going to get there on your own rather than relying and putting your trust in Jesus, uh, good luck. That's your funeral. Because Jesus is greater. That's the theme of this series. Jesus is greater. So as we proceed through the series, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is indeed greater, it's my prayer that you will pay attention then to the role of Jesus in your life, in your spiritual growth, in your connection with God, because there is no greater way than the way of Jesus in our lives. It is he upon whom we must put our full weight of faith. There was an event in the life of Jesus that was significant for a number of reasons. It was the time when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and was transfigured there before them. He let them see his supernatural glory. And miraculously, there with that gathering showed up Moses and Elijah, the the two representatives, by the way, of how the Old Testament had been identified to the Jews, the law represented by Moses and the, the, the prophets, Elijah. So Moses and Elijah are there representing the first revelation of God through the law and through the prophets. But it was there with those two representatives of that first revelation that God spoke audibly about Jesus. And he says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This, church, is what I pray that we will be able to apply to our lives as we make our way through the book of Hebrews, and that by listening to him, the Good Shepherd, we will know God better in a much more satisfying relationship as he leads us into life change. 
permanent life change that will bring us satisfaction and joy that you have never, ever thought about in your life. All right. Well, that's uh, our first message from the book of Hebrews, kind of an overview. I uh, hope that you're going to stay with us for the remainder of our study. I have no idea how long it's going to go. We will probably have to interrupt uh, our study as we get into the Advent season later on this year. But uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Thank you, Steve Pittman, for being our tech guru. And thank you, Lisa Welly, for all the work that you put in uh, producing these uh, podcasts and getting them up on the sites. Um, If you're ever in the uh, Central Oregon area, uh, around Redmond Bend uh, area, Prineville, um, please visit us. Uh, Tell us that you've been listening to us on the weekend. That would be awesome to have you there. Otherwise, uh, if you have questions or concerns or comments, uh, go ahead and reach out to me at Trey, T-R-E-Y dot P-B-C-C. That's Trey dot P-B-C-C at gmail.com. God bless you. We'll talk to you next week.